2 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to, his, to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived at Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved half of half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beherehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and of Makkah were by themselves in the open country. 
When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of, his, of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abisha and his, bro- his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to, the, to battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abisha and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadazar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadazar, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed off the Syrians of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were the servants of Adadazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This is a wonderful couple of passages here, these two chapters as we enter this, uh, second in, this new, uh, sorry, installment in 2 Samuel. And we're going to take it in two chunks, just on the lines of those two chapters, chapter 9 first, then chapter 10. And we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 9. And I say that just so that you, if we get sort of near the end of the service and you think you're still only in chapter 9, it's okay. Um, chapter 10 will be fairly quick. Uh, you can find the passage printed in the service sheet. I'd encourage you to keep that open. It will help you as we try and follow through And just on the back of the sheet, there's space if you want to make some notes. Um, Please do feel free to do that. So as we come to this then, let's pray and ask the Lord uh, for his help. Some words from the end of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Lord God, as we come to sit under your word this evening, we ask that you would cause us to rejoice and tremble before you. May we this evening discover again the blessing that there is in finding refuge in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us by your Spirit as we Look at this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my kids has been reading through the Narnia books, um, C.S. Lewis's books, really wonderful stories. A little trivia question for you as we begin. There's one character who appears in all seven of the books. Do you know which one that is? No one have a guess? No one's brave enough to have a guess. Or no one's read the books. Aslan. Aslan is the character 
in each of the books, the lion and the true and good king of Narnia. And Lewis's portrayal of the king, of, of Aslan, is he's one of, of immense power. He's an awesome creature. And so everyone who meets him, they tremble at uh, their first sight of him. Yet to their joy, they then discover that wonderfully he is also kind. He's both full of kindness and at the same time willing to bear his teeth to protect those under his care. Aslan has both severity and kindness. And that's just what you need in a king. See, a king with kindness but no power, well, he's not going to last very long. He's not going to be able to deal with the threats to his people. But a king with power and no kindness, well, he's a tyrant. And he abuses his people. Now, the king that we need must have both power and kindness. As we've gone through 1 Samuel and now into 2 Samuel, we've been learning about the king that God chooses for his people, the king that we really need. And we saw Saul to begin with. And Saul was powerful, but he wasn't kind. And he wasn't generous towards others. He used his power to serve himself rather than his people. And so God removed him and his descendants from the throne, from the kingship, and he gave his kingdom to another, to a shepherd boy called David. And the question is, is David going to be any different? Well, what we've seen is that God anointed David... God chose him as his king, and then over several years he has removed the internal opposition to David's rule until he can be installed in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of 2 Samuel as king of all Israel in the capital city, Jerusalem. That's, chapter, that's 2 Samuel 1 to 6, really. And then as David is installed, God makes him a promise. He makes a covenant with him. God promises to establish him and his descendants on the throne of his kingdom forever. And what God promises, he keeps. And last week Scott showed us in chapter 8 that God indeed did establish David's kingdom. He cleared the enemies from around Israel. He gave him peace on every side. And so we've seen that because of the Lord, David is powerful but is he kind? Chapter 9 begins with David now settled on his throne. And perhaps he's reflecting on the faithfulness of God in his covenant towards him, that God has kept his promises to him. Because it seems that David now remembers that he too has made covenant promises. And it's time for him to make sure that he keeps them, that he keeps his word. Now, the particular covenant that he made that he has in mind is way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. There, David had made a covenant. He'd made a promise to his great friend, Jonathan, that he would always care for Jonathan's descendants should anything happen to Jonathan. And now Jonathan's dead. And it's been probably 20 years since he made that promise. 
And now it's time then for him to make good on what he'd said. And so we enter chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now notice this first of all. David's motivation, it is love that motivates his heart to action. The word kindness here in the question of verse 1 It is definitely the word of the chapter. It appears again in verse 3 in the repeated question and again in verse 7. It's an important word in the chapter. It's an important word in the Bible. And it's the word chesed. Now, it's actually the same word that God used in chapter 7, verse 15, when he makes a covenant with David and with David's descendants. And there, in chapter 7, verse 15, it's translated steadfast love. See, chesed is the kind of covenant love that God has for his people. It's the committed love that moves him to act with mercy and grace and kindness towards them, undeserving though they may be. And so, in this first verse, we're seeing that just as David has received God's loving kindness towards him that same kindness now flows out of David's heart. David remembers that the the love that God has had for him and the love that he had for his friend, and so he now wishes to express that love to his friend's family. But there's a problem. 20 years have passed, and he doesn't know if such a family still exists. And so David asks around, and they track down this guy, Ziba, who's a prosperous servant of Saul. Saul is the previous king. He's Jonathan's father. And Ziba tells him where to find Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Now, just by the way, I've been practicing the name Mephibosheth all week, and uh, I still really struggle to get it right. And it tends to get worse as I go on. So by the end of the sermon, I may be saying it completely differently. So um, just bear that in mind. But here we go. Verse 2. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant's. So if the first thing that we notice is the motivation of David's heart being that of love, who is it that now that, we, that David wants to show his kindness to? That's the second thing we notice. It's Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. But who is he? 
Well, we're told a few things about him. He is, we're told, crippled in both feet. Now, there's a prize if you can remember which verse uh, told us that before. If, uh, if you've got a good memory, this may ring something of a bell for you at least. At the end of Saul's reign, um, as Saul and Jonathan died, things were pretty bloody at that point. And it looked like the rest of Saul's family were going to be wiped out. Not by David, but by a couple of thugs named Rechab and Barna. And Mephibosheth was next on the hit list. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, we hear his story. Let me read it to you briefly. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that is, their deaths. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. So it's really just a, a really tragic story, isn't it? His life would have been hard today if this happened to him, but it would have been very hard in that day. In a moment, he lost his health and he lost his home, and he lost his family inheritance. He would have been pitied by those who saw him, and doubtless he felt a sense of shame and helplessness. In those days, there was no NHS, there was no dole, no benefit system. If you couldn't work, you relied on the handouts of others, or you starved. Now, verse 4 reveals that this man, Machir, had stepped up and looked after him. And that was a good job. So that's who Mephibosheth is. He's weak, he's helpless, he's powerless to save himself. But the writer wants us to see who else he is. So what do you notice about how he's described in this passage well, verse 3, Ziba, the servant, is called Saul's servant. And we're looking for someone in the house of Saul. Then in verse 6, Mephibosheth is referred to as the son of Jonathan, son of Saul. And then later on, it's really striking, verses 9 and 10. Look how he's referred to there. Just have a look again with me, verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul... And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. See, not Jonathan's son, but Saul's grandson. And it's repeated. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. So who's Mephibosheth? Well, he's a helpless figure to be pitied. That's the first note in our drama. But he's also, and it really couldn't be more clear, could it? He's also Saul's grandson. In other words, he's a potential enemy. He's a rival to David's throne. See, in the ancient world, when one dynasty took over from another, the name of the game was purge. Kill them all. Don't leave one standing, because if you do, they'll come back to get you later on. Everybody did it. 
It was expected. It was foolish, even, not to wipe everyone out. And it could well be, for all David knows, that Mephibosheth holds David responsible for his misery. I mean, that would make sense. Before David came along, he had two working feet, and he was in line to inherit the throne. And when you know that, doesn't that make David's kindness all the more wonderful? See, David breaks with the norm here. He should, by any ancient code, separate Mephibosheth's head from his shoulders. But he doesn't. Why? Because covenant love constrains him. He has known the kindness of God towards him. And he's made a promise out of love to his friend before God. And his character is such that he'll keep that word. And so he acts in kindness to this enemy. Now here's the tension in the story. Mephibosheth doesn't know this. And so as David calls him into his office he certainly expects a quick death. Look at the scene again in verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. There's the tension. And David said to him, and here's where these words must have been such a relief, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness, Hesed, for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. In the king's kindness, this is what this helpless enemy receives. Number one, protection. Do not fear. I will show you chesed, loving kindness. I will love you as I loved your father. Protection. And then provision. I will restore the estate of Saul to you. And the next verse is David co-ops Ziba into farming it for him to make sure he's provided for Protection, provision, and then he receives a place. A place at the king's table. Verse 11 tells us that he will sit alongside the sons of the king and eat with them in fellowship as if he is one of their number. It's truly an astonishing and extravagant act of kindness. He doesn't merely spare his life. No, he pours out blessing upon him. And at that moment, Mephibosheth has a choice to make, doesn't he? Will he proudly refuse the offer? Will he insist, oh, I can look after myself? Will he be unwilling to bow the the knee to this king who replaced him? Or... Will he humble himself 
and receive this kindness. And that's the choice he makes, and it's the right choice, verse 8. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He assumes this position of humility, and from there David takes him, and he does what he has promised, and we leave him in this chapter, still with his helplessness, he still can't walk, he still has scrippled feet, but he's no longer an enemy or an outcast. He is now one restored to royal position by the king, and he's welcomed to the king's house. End of scene one. Now let's look at scene two, chapter 10. We'll be much briefer here. Now we need to see, first of all, that these two chapters are connected. They're connected by the word hesed. But frustratingly, the translation that we're using doesn't translate it the same way. So the word loyally in verse 2 is the same word, kindness, with kindness. So in both chapters, David wishes to show kindness to a potential enemy. Both of them are sons of dead kings. One's a Jew, Mephibosheth, one's a Gentile, Hanan, son of Nahash, the Ammonite. So when we see these similarities, we need to compare the two. That's what we're being asked to do, to compare the two accounts. And when we do that, well, the thing that really stands out to us is the responses of these two enemies, because they couldn't be more different. See, whereas one receives the kindness of the king, the other rejects it, and in fact, he ridicules it. So let's read chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal with kindness with Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father dealt with kindness with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he's honouring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. I mean, imagine before the G7 summit, President Biden sends his team over to get prepared in advance, make sure everything's ready, and the Prime Minister orders that they take off their suit trousers and their pants and they go into the office shredder in number 10. And then he shaves their head. I guess it's that way rather than that way. And then he puts them on the plane back to DC. See, it's a massive diplomatic no-no, isn't it? Hanan has the opportunity to solidify an alliance with the king of Israel, one it seems that his father had, had made before him. But rather than accept David's kindness, 
He listens to his foolish advisors and rejects it. And he goes further than that, doesn't he? He ridicules those who bring it. He humiliates the messengers of the king. He exposes them, literally, to public disgrace. And here's what happens. David, first of all, cares for his servants. Did you notice that? He allows them to go to Jericho to recover, to regrow their hair, uh, regrow their beards, before they return to court and to their families. But the Ammonites, well, they become a stench in David's nostrils. To reject and ridicule the servants of the king is to reject and ridicule the king himself just as it is today. And to treat the king's kindness like this, well, that brings his wrath. The Ammonites have realized their mistake. They hire this huge mercenary army to defend themselves from the storm that's coming. They gather their forces. And verse 7, when David heard of it, he sent Joab the general and all the host of the mighty men. Now, the Ammonites are tactically astute and they lead the Israelites into a trap. The army becomes pinned, one army in front of it and, all, and another army behind it. And what we're seeing here is actually something very familiar to us if we know Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this, that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. They're gathering together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his king. Saying what? They're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be tied to David. Now Joab, David's general, placing his army to face the threat, he knows that this battle is a battle for the honour of the Lord's name and for the Lord's people. Now, Joab's an interesting character. He's a pretty tricky customer. and All the way through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, uh, he's a, a bit of a nasty piece of work most of the time. But here he speaks the truth. Verse 12. He says to the men, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our gods, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. And the result of the battle... It's a rout. And the next battle against the reformed Syrian mercenaries, it's a rout again. Psalm 2 continues, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. See, Hanan's a fool. He mistakes the king's kindness for powerlessness but reject and ridicule God's king who offers you his kindness and it will not go well for you. So he could have had his welcome, but instead he receives his wrath. Now that's the story of chapters 9 and 10. As we come to a close, what are we to make of it? Where do we fit in the story Throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, we've seen that David is God's king. He's the king that God's people needed. But we've also considered that David is not the king that God's people need. 
that though he was a good king, and especially here in chapter 9 and chapter 10, he's a great king. He's also flawed and sinful. And it won't be long, just a chapter's time, in fact, before that's revealed to us very clearly. See, we've seen that David points us to a greater king, to his offspring, his descendant, the one from his line who will sit on the throne of the people of God for eternity and who will be greater than David in every way, even in the extent of his kindness towards his enemies. See, David points us to the true king that all God's people need, And his name is Jesus Christ. And isn't Jesus Christ, whom we see in the Gospels, kind, powerful, and kind? And the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 5, well, he writes like this, and he seems even perhaps to have this story in his mind. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God, For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, there's a sense in which we are just like Mephibosheth. Weak, helpless, powerless to save ourselves. And we are sinners, enemies of God and his King, Jesus Christ. We are those who would take the throne for ourselves if we had the chance, as we seek to run our lives our own way. Yet what has our King done Behold his kindness. Out of his covenant love, out of his hesed, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His kindness moved him towards us, undeserving sinners. He sought us so that he might save us. And then what does he give us? Well, he gives us reconciliation. That's what Romans 5 says. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That is, to use the terms of 2 Samuel, we are brought through the kindness of Christ at the cross into the family. We are given protection. We no longer face the king's wrath. We're given provision. The king cares for our needs. And we receive a place. We find that we have a seat at the king's table. We are treated as if we are indeed a son of the king. For that is what we've become. 
And what must we do to receive such favour? Well, we mustn't do what Hanan did. We mustn't reject the king's offer of kindness or even ridicule that. That will only bring his wrath. We must do what Mephibosheth did. Simply humble ourselves and receive such a gift. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Isn't that what believers say of themselves? But it's the only way. We mustn't reject his kindness. We mustn't ridicule his kindness, certainly. We must humbly receive it by faith. And if we do that, we find a place at the table of the king. Let me pray. Our Father, we know that we do not deserve your kindness, that we are sinful enemies of you and your Son, that we have sought to live our lives our own way. We've wanted to be king instead of you. We confess this to you and we repent of it and we receive the kindness that you offer us. Oh Lord God, we thank you that though you are powerful, you are no tyrant, but you are kind and you receive us with grace and with mercy and you pour out your blessings upon us, protecting us, providing for us and giving us a place at your table. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.